Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for an opportunity to come and study, join together as friends of yours to, to seek to know you better in your, in your methods and principles. We ask that your spirit will be poured out, enlighten our minds, draw us into unity that you've promised to do through your Son. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number 12 in the quarterly discipleship, and the title this week is The Harvest and Harvesters. And before I, I get started, I want to make an announcement for our online audience. Uh, many of you over this past week have emailed, I can't tell you how many emails I've gotten, um, requesting materials. I was out of town this week, so we'll be getting them out to you this coming week. So that's why they're not out yet. And then, as I told you last week, we're getting emails about 100 a week from all over the world. This is another one that came in this week. It says, I thought you might find it interesting that I'm listening to your Bible uh, school class uh, discussions and making an attempt to bring those concepts and discussions to my Bible school class of 11 to 12-year-olds. The lessons that are in the quarterly for them do not seem to hold their attention much. I'm finding that they do not have a problem becoming engaged in thought when we discuss and study about the character of God and even how we are to behave and disciple others when we understand a bit about that character. I believe this is a crucial message for the spiritual development uh, that we hel- uh, help them to find as many answers as possible to their questions in the way that makes sense and gets them to examine their own beliefs and how it affects their interaction with people and with their God. As you can imagine, some of these children have been schooled very well in traditional church doctrine, and they can spout out pat answers with the best of them. But now, when certain concepts or questions are put to them, they have to put some energy into their answers. We sit at a round table so that each child feels equal and has the equal chance to be heard. It is great to see the wheels turning. Even the boy who supposedly has hyperactivity disorder sits there and interacts as a normal kid, raising some pretty thought-provoking questions. I have asked them whether our discussions help them to have a better understanding of why there is a struggle for our race and why there is a controversy about God at all, and they all invariably answer with a relieved yes. These children are now even asking that we pray for some of the adults they know uh, to come to an understanding of God as a benevolent father and not the angry judge that their parents fear. I feel that this needs to be brought to our children. I sense that if more children had this sort of presentation of the reasons why Christ died and all that it represents rather than the angry God seeking blood to pay for sin's routine, we probably would have retained far more children in the church than we have. Jesus becomes more relevant, and so does his Father become more real to us when they are presented to us in the integrated approach. There are several of us in our church that have wondered whether we could do a Bible study for adults using your seminars that are online. We want to get to remission if that's acceptable. I also just have to tell you that there's a preacher's wife from a local Pentecostal church who has a woman's Bible study class and who has benefited greatly by listening and sharing your DVDs, God in the Brain, which my husband gave her just a few weeks ago. We are delighted... And so are they. I just had an emergency patient today, and I have no idea of her religion, with whom I fell into conversation about why there are so many wars in the Old Testament and not the New. I proposed the idea to her that I had learned from Dr. Jennings, which makes perfectly good sense. She literally lit up with understanding and a new concept of the love of God. She said she got goosebumps just thinking about how God loves us that much. We talked about this longer than it took me to take care of her emergency procedure. I gave her a God in Your Brain DVD I had in the car and just told her to pass it forward when she was done. She said she would. This is a healing message, and I feel privileged to pass it along. Happy us that we have such a God. Isn't that nice? And we get these coming in every week, every week. So for those who'd like to present this material on the God in Your Brain DVD, the Burgundy DVD set out there, there's a PDF file with the slides on them so anybody could take and present the slides, the slide program themselves if they want. So 
All righty, let's begin uh, the class in Sabbath lesson. It's the first paragraph. It says, In many respects, this week's study is a continuation of the previous lesson. Christ established spiritual leaders for the distinct purpose of proclaiming the kingdom of God. The principles and methodology that Jesus employed must remain the spiritual foundation for the Christian's preparation today. I think that's very well said. First question, how would you describe the kingdom of God? That's just that's the term, the kingdom of God. We hear that, but how would you describe the kingdom of God? A government of love. The government of love, great. And, and, and is, is, is anybody want to add to that? Can you flush that out? Is, is it functional in some way? Do you have some demarcating factors that would make it clear in our minds what that means? The universe run by a, a loving being with nothing but the best interest of his subjects in mind. I like that. Any other thoughts? The kingdom of God. Peace, no fear. Just that, like that. fear, just where you can live and um, just live happily all the time without having to worry about things. We could follow that up with two texts. The kingdom of God is within you, mm-hmm. and peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world. Good, very good, very good. So as we, oh, go ahead. I think of peaceful and serene, serenity as aspects of that kingdom. So as we think about promoting the gospel of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of love, the kingdom of beneficence, it says in here we must use the methods, the principles and methodology that Jesus employed. So what are the methods God uses to promote his kingdom? Ambassadors. Ambassadors. Yeah, we're going to get to those human ambassadors in a moment. That's right. So he, he uses he uses others to help share. Healing. Healing. Christ clearly went around doing a lot of healing to help promote the gospel. Nature. Nature. Caring for the needy. Carry for the needy. These are all excellent. No, wait, Russell. Uh, one of our online listeners, in response to your question about the kingdom of God, says it is service oriented. Each one serving the other. Oh yes, that principle of giving functionally how it works. I love this description. It's in a book called Desire of Ages, page 759. God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one can cast a pebble to the earth, but he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral, and love and truth are to be the prevailing power. Did you hear that? Do you agree, first off, with that that description? Or do you think that God uses coercive power? Threats, intimidation. If you don't accept the blood of my son, I will torture you and kill you in the end. Justice requires that I use my power to execute you. You see, as soon as you bring that idea in, you're using coercive power. But coercive power, according to this author, is found only under Satan's government. I agree with that. If he could use coercive power and that was his nature, he would not have needed to send Christ down here to begin with. He could have just, that's what it has to be done. Kneel or die. he, He values and treasures the power of choice and each, each individual's uh, ability to have that that he gave so much that he came to. So why then, I agree with you completely, why can God not 
win the war by the use of physical power. Remember Zechariah, not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works as the Lord. Oh, it's because you'll be governed by fear. Yes. And so what is it? So maybe we should ask this question. What does a win, winning the war, what does winning the war, a win, look like to God? When God wins it, what's it look like? What's that God win look like? Everybody kneeling? Everybody healing, not kneeling. I like that. Everybody's healing, not kneeling. I like that. Because you can kneel in fear. The Roman emperors required they kneel in intimidation and fear. I don't think there's anything wrong with kneeling in a true appreciation and awe and respect. But the point is, you can kneel out of fear and intimidation rather than out of love and respect. But the healing, so what does that look like? So wouldn't it be then, a win looks like individual beings with their full heart, mind, soul, the greatest man, love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Loving and trusting Him completely is the win for God, isn't it? Can you get love and trust by using force and threat? You can't get it. You can't, it's not possible. Even for the, the creator to get love and trust by threat and coercion. That's why it can't be done. That's why it's not part of his government. And do you see how destructive it would be to inculcate and infect Christianity with this idea that God is the ultimate cosmic executioner? To use that, that, that idea. So then, how do we take the principles of love, truth, mercy, goodness and put them into practical application? They all sound really good. They sound nice words to say. How do we make it practical in reaching people for God's kingdom? Because if you think about it, how many of those who hold this view that God must kill in the end in order to be just would actually stand up and say, we don't believe God is love. We don't believe God is good. We don't believe God is kind. We don't believe God is gracious. We don't believe God is merciful. They would never say that. They believe all those things. Don't they? Yes. So they wouldn't argue with God as loving, gracious, kind, merciful, all these things. They wouldn't argue with that. There's typically, though, a three-letter word that follows that. But. So the lie isn't between a God of love and a God who is mean and dictatorial. That's not how he's presented. That's not the lie. The most deceptive lies are the lies that come under the guise of of some aspect of truth. You look at Satan and how he deceived Christ, or I deceived, not, not tried to deceive Christ, and how he deceived Eve in the garden. He took a bit of truth and, and added a, a little bit of a lie into it and kind of mixed them together. Isn't that what he does? Which poison is the most dangerous in your home? One that has skulls and crossbones on it and says danger poison? Or the same poison put it in a bottle that says, you know, uh, uh, orange juice? See, it's much more dangerous when you put the poison in something purporting to be healthy for you. And this is what Satan does. He takes the poison and wraps it in something that pretends to be good for you. That's why Satan became that creature, and he possessed that creature in the garden so that Eve would not be afraid of him because he knew that if Eve saw him, she would not want to be near him. So, like I heard on the radio, he took over the body of a serpent in one of God's creatures and hid behind it. That way. Yeah, same, same, same idea. To your question, 
question about how would that be demonstrated, that aspect. I would, I would propose that it's possible that it would be demonstrated in similar acts. Um, going out and, and uh, reaching out to others or going out and doing things, but from a different motivation. Possibly from a motivation of wanting to earn God's love or possibly from a motivation of fear that if I don't do these things that, uh, that I will lose out and wrath will be upon me. So you might see an action that's similar but from an entirely different motivation. So, so I, I agree with you. So the rub, many of those who are teaching theologies that misrepresent Christ don't even know it, do they? Jesus said, this is from Jesus, not from me, Matthew 7, 22 and 23. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Notice, this is not in the name of Buddha or Hare Krishna or Muhammad. This is the name of Jesus they're saying. Jesus is saying, you do it in your name. These are Christians he's talking about. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Think about that. Think about the implication. How is it that people could dedicate their lives to sharing the gospel, yet be God's enemies? How is that possible? 2,000 years ago, did it happen? So what would constitute then being an enemy of God? What would that look like? Horns and pitchfork? Is that what, what it looks like necessarily? Church leaders. I mean, see, the, 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 how many people are truly deceived by, by some? There are a few, but the majority are the majority deceived by truly evil people. The serial killer, the pedophile rapist, the, uh, the person with the pitchfork and doing uh, human sacrifice. How many of uh, 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 humans are really taken in by that kind of uh, overt evil? No, that doesn't get people. It's the evil that presents itself as righteous. If you guys want to see what that can look like, I recommend a book to you called People of the Lie. People of the Lie by M. Scott Peck. He's a psychiatrist. It's an incredible book. First two-thirds. The last third I would see quite a bit different than him because in the last third of the book he, he tries to explore his understanding of demon possession. But the first two-thirds of the book, he actually describes human evil. And there's a warning in the front that this book is not for the immature. It's for the mature. And what he describes is not the Adolf Hitlers and the pedophiles and the rapists. and the, and the That's not what he describes. He describes in beautifully, pulls the mask off and lets you see the evil that walks around masquerading as righteousness. It's an incredible book. There's an incredible job of it. If you read this, you're going to go, oh, I've seen this. I've seen this. But you didn't know it. But you know the same... Trend. You're talking about um, people like her Christians, whatever. It's not those people that worry me. It's the ones that are in our church. And they worry you because? Because they believe in a wrathful God. I mean, when you talk to people that we think believe as we do, go to the same church as we do, but they don't at all. I mean, they, you know, God's going to punish. He's going to destroy. He's going to burn you in the end. And so and this works against the kingdom of God because it incites what kind of things in the heart? Fear. And distrust. Think about if you had somebody who was coming to, you, to your spouse and telling your spouse that if she ever or he ever disappoints you, comes up short, and you don't you know, take care of it by proper forgiveness and ritual or whatever you must do to appease the, the anger and wrath of your spouse, that he'll kill you or she'll kill you. And you believe it. Is love going to grow in that relationship? But Tim, it all starts out wanting someone to be saved but saved 
from one. Exactly. That reminds me of that cartoon I told you. I loved it. Jesus standing at the door. His hands on the, on the door, and then you see these little bubbles of conversation. You know how the cartoons can use these little bubbles? Uh, and the first one says, let me in. And the bubble coming from the inside says, why? From Jesus, so I can save you. From what? From what I'll do to you if you don't let me in. <laughs> Isn't this how Christianity presents God? You better let me save you or I'll kill you. And Jesus died to turn away the wrath of the Father. And we have these pictures of him. My blood, my blood, Father. My blood. Remember my blood. Don't hurt him. The Jewish leaders 2,000 years ago thought they represented Christ. Thought they represented God. Yet they killed him when they came. Consider the problems we have between the conflict between Christians and Muslims today. How do you think this happened? This, this, this tension today. If you go back in history, where did this arise? Prior to Constantine's conversion, Christians met in homes, lived communally, shared and helped each other, refused to war against the state, didn't attack people who disagreed with them. And perhaps the closest example we see in modern society, I'm not saying exact, but closest example may be the Amish. You still live communally, don't attack their enemies, Remember what happened when their little Amish girls were killed in that school? And now they took up a donation for the killer's family? That's probably the closest example we had of the early Christian church. After Constantine converted, though, the church changed. It stopped meeting at homes because he outlawed that. He required that they come to public places of worship. And the public places of worship were what? The former pagan temples. And if you've been to Rome, we were there a couple years ago, and we went through many of the cathedrals in Rome. And all of them, basically, were previously pagan temples and they still have multiple pagan idols gods in the in the, in the christian churches still so christianity became infected and the most serious infection was this change in god's law god's law isn't the law of love the design parameters that, that, that life is based upon god's like a roman dictator he makes rules and he's going to punish you like a roman dictator if you don't do what he says And some have argued that Muhammad was the first Protestant. Because he was protesting much of the abuses coming out of Rome. If you look at his message, much of what he was protesting was the misrepresentation that Rome was presenting of God as a result of the change of God's law. And what view, and, and of course, what did Christians do? Did Christians go to the Muslims? In 500, 600, 700, 1,000 A.D., did they go with, to, with a message of love and compassion and ministry and service? Or did they go with the sword? So they went with the sword. Evil must be punished. Rebellion must be punished. Let's go kill these evildoers. What view of Christian God do you think the Crusaders planted in the minds of Muslims? Do you think you can convert Muslims with the Crusades? Are we any better today? How many Christians would give their life for a Muslim? Did our leader, did Jesus give his life for Muslims? Hmm. Do you think history might be different had Christians gone to the Muslims with a message of love? with the message that Jesus took, treating them like Jesus treated the Samaritans, 
Like Jesus treated the woman at the well. Like Jesus treated the prostitute. Like Jesus treated the tax collector. Might the history between Christians and Muslims be quite different if we'd have went with that message instead of the Crusades? So what can we do to insulate, protect, and ensure ourselves that we don't find ourselves as one of God's enemies while we're claiming to promote the gospel? Because there's a warning from Christ in the end of time. It's going to happen. How can we insulate and be sure that we're not on that wrong side? Well, um, I was reading in a, a book that I hadn't really come across before. It was written over 100 years ago. It's called The Story of Jesus. And I, and I found a description about how Jesus learned. And I thought, well, maybe if we were to study as Jesus studied when he was a boy on earth, maybe it would help us. And this is the description found in The Story of Jesus, page 30. Jesus did not go to these schools. These are the schools of the prophets. But they taught many things that were not true. Instead of God's word, the sayings of men were studied, and often these were contrary to that which God had taught through his prophets. God himself, by the Holy Spirit, instructed Mary how to bring up his son, Mary taught Jesus from the Holy Scriptures, and he learned to read and study them for himself. Jesus also loved to study the wonderful things which God had made in the earth and in the sky. In, in this book of nature, he saw the trees and plants and animals and the sun and the stars. Day by day, he watched them and tried to learn lessons from them and to understand the reason for things. Holy angels were with him, and helped him to learn from these things about God. Thus, as he grew in height and strength, he grew also in knowledge and wisdom. Every child may gain knowledge as Jesus did. We should spend our time in learning only that which is true. Falsehood and fables will do us no good. Only the truth is of any value. And this we may learn from God's word and from his works. As we study these things, the angels will help us to understand. What method did you hear being described? What method did Jesus use to learn? Sola Scriptura? Did Jesus use Sola Scriptura? He did not. This is, a, this is one of the lies that's infected the church. And the reason it's infected the church is because when you decouple Scripture from God's handiwork in nature, where his laws are actually functional and working in his creation then it becomes twisted and arbitrary and imposed, and you get this distortion of God. When the Scripture is anchored, so you have harmony between both Scripture and God's works in nature, then you actually come to a deeper reality. And this is what we call the integrative evidence-based approach. Scripture, science, nature, and experience. Remember, science alone, just if you decouple it from Scripture, you're going to end up walking that path of godlessness. Experience alone, if you decouple from Scripture, goes down mysticism. And Scripture alone, well, we currently have 34,000 different Christian groups claiming the Bible support them. It leads to confusion. Now, it's no wonder that, that, that Revelation describes Christianity at the end of time as Babylon. It's confused. A lot of different voices, a lot of different noises, a lot of different doctrines, a lot of different gods being presented. Why? Because sola scriptura. Let's just use the Bible and let's decouple it from God's examples of other places and lessons. Do we have evidence to support this idea that Jesus used this integrative approach? Well, look at Jesus' ministry. Did he teach from Scripture? Did he teach from nature? And did he teach through experience? Put your hands in my side, Thomas. Stop doubting and believe. Experience it. Check it out. 
And that's the scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience me. Check me out. All harmonizing. Some have criticized this approach, the integrative evidence-based approach, suggesting that I am telling us to study nature and experience and ignore scripture. Did you hear me say that? No, you must never ignore the Scripture. Scriptures must always be included. And whatever your understanding of nature is, it must be harmonized with Scripture. But those who hold this, 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 this penal view of God, it cannot sustain itself. It is destroyed when you harmonize with the other two because it's contrary to the, the laws which govern the universe, the laws that govern reality. So we can learn, as Jesus did, if we are willing to open our minds to all the threads of evidence God has given us, to notice what he did also. He thought for himself. He studied for himself. He learned the reasons for things. Not just the things. See, it's not enough to know which day is the Sabbath. That's not enough. If you don't know the reason for it, then it does you no good. It's not enough to to know, as a child growing up, supposed to brush my teeth. If you never learn the reason for it, then when you're out of the home, guess what's going to happen if you have no reason for brushing your teeth? Most likely you'll stop. Why should I? There's no reason. This is a rule mom had. This is what happens when you raise kids on rules. There's no reasons. Why should we do it? We must understand the reasons for things. So why do so many end up God's enemies in the end? What do you think? Misunderstanding. Misunderstanding. Believing things that are inconsistent with God's true character. Second paragraph states, and I think this is well right in the lesson, it says, whenever proselytizing displaces repentance, conversion, and spiritual transformation, the mission falters. I couldn't agree more. Do you think your church, whichever church you go to, and your church leadership would support a series of meetings, evangelistic meetings, designed to bring people to the truth about God's character of love, his methods of running the universe, his principles of goodness, mercy, and truth that we read earlier, uh, which teach how deviations from God's design are actually destructive while harmony with his design is healing, in other words, the reasons for things? Call people to Jesus in harmony with his kingdom, offering baptism into Jesus Christ, as the apostles did, for those who would desire it, but not merely focusing on a list of fundamental beliefs or doctrines that one can hold without actually knowing God. An evangelistic series focusing on people becoming, coming to a healing, transforming experience with God without requiring a specific denominational affiliation. You think your church would support that? In other words, repentance and transformation, baptizing into Jesus Christ, not baptizing into Apollo, not baptizing into Paul, not baptizing into Peter, not baptizing into Methodism or Baptist or Adventism, baptizing into Jesus. And then, if they want to join a denomination, then, as you know, to join the denomination, there's a vote that always happens. We, we as an organization have linked the two. As soon as baptism is over, the pastor looks at the church, do I have a mo- motion to accept this member to mom, nom, membership? Second? All in favor? Boom. But they're actually two separate things. Sure. Baptized into Jesus and membership in the organization aren't the same. Should we decouple them? See, when did they baptize into Jesus in, in the Bible times? after they went through a six-month indoctrination period of the 28 fundamentals. Is that what happened? 
Or as soon as their hearts were converted, the, 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 the eunuch says to Philip, hey, there's water, why do we wait? Let's baptize. On Pentecost, they, they said, let's baptize. Boom. Yes. But it's important that a person count the cost. So that needs to be laid out what life in Jesus really means. I've just been studying this. You, you, you give your heart to the Lord, you have to understand conversion to some degree before you can be converted. You have to know what's happening in your heart and mind and really to retain it. And, and that's not necessarily the same day that you first find out yeah, I, I think we read in Scripture that... for that to be discussed, what does it mean? Yeah, and whose place is it to decide when a person's ready for baptism? The person themselves, but it needs to be... But you have to be taught and instructed. Really? I think so. Really? About a conversion, yes. Hmm. I've been studying that. See, we do know that uh, many of the people converted to Pentecost had seeds planted by Christ before his crucifixion. And then when Peter preached at Pentecost, those Holy Spirit brought results from the seeds previously planted. So those people had cogitated over it and so forth and so on. But, but they weren't converted until Pentecost. Okay, but they understood what they were doing. Well, I don't know how much they understood. I think if they understood all that was involved, then we wouldn't have had so many of the conflicts that Paul was trying to clean up in Corinthians and other places. Those people came in with a lot of problems. They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't quit their Sabbath job. They didn't give up the foods that they were eating. They didn't change their lifestyle. They didn't quit smoking. They didn't do all this stuff before they were baptized. They were baptized into Jesus Christ, and then the Holy Spirit began cleaning them up. We cannot be freed from sin without the Holy Spirit. We can't be transformed without the Holy Spirit. The other thing I'm worried about is also the emotional roller coaster that some of these people come in on. I mean, you get a high school week of prayer, and it's suddenly politically correct to, you know, to join the crying, screaming, whatever, go get baptized. Five days later... You know, I think that's an excellent point, and I think maybe Rachel's speaking about that. These emotional conversions that aren't genuine conversions. Well, it's not, you know, it, it, I'm not going to say genuine or not genuine, but I mean, there's, there's more depth that needs to be developed than just the hyper-emotionalism of the moment. I agree with you. That's what I mean. I agree with you. go for the hyper-emotionalism of the moment, they get their little numbers checked off, and then there's no follow-up, and the follow-up has to be there preferably before. But do you think that has to do with the method of the evangelism? Well, it's a combination of several things, and that's a big factor, yes. But the, the thing is, there, there needs to be a follow-up. I mean, we sometimes call it visitation, which doesn't happen anymore. But, you know, in an academic standpoint, there's, there's got to be, okay, you, you've made this commitment, you understand the road you're wanting to go down. Now let's study that a little bit, you know, so that you have a little bit more broadening to your base, so that you're stronger going into this. We're not stopping you, not discouraging you, but... Let's develop this before we go into it. You see, I'm trying to make a distinction between the conversion... Pardon? You're making a covenant with God. See, I'm trying to make a distinction between the conversion that the apostles are seeking via the Holy Spirit versus the conversion that Jesus talked to the Jews about. You seek the world over to find a convert, and when you do, you make him twice the son of hell. They were both converting people to their systems. And what was the main difference? How do you think the Jews converted someone? Wasn't it into a system of theology? A system of rituals, a system of beliefs that they had to study and come to. It was an indoctrination conversion. It wasn't a heart transformation conversion. And I'm trying to make that distinction. Are we actually seeking the conversion that changes the heart? Or do we, have we fallen into a, a well-meaning, well, well, you know, good meaning. I mean, we, our intentions were good. 
to do it, but have we fallen into a trap of indoctrination because we want to protect the church? We don't want people baptized in the church that smoke. We don't want people baptized in the church that struggle with alcohol. We don't want people baptized in the church that, that have a pornography addiction. We, they have to clean that up stuff because we want to protect the church from all these infections that, that could come. So we have to clean that stuff up. We don't want people in the church that work on Sabbath. You've got to quit that job before you can be baptized. Yeah, that's, that's not where I'm going. I'm going with, okay, you've made the commitment. I, I, heard, I heard the difference. Yeah. I heard the difference. Well, I, I'm Jewish, and I became a Christian 12 years ago. And once was out of desperation that brought me to my knees, and it opened my heart, but not fully. And then within a year, I realized that I had to either fully go in or not, and that's when I threw open the door. And I could feel God's love in my heart then, and He lifted me through a terrible time. So I can just say that it was, you know, the desperation was what drove me, but I always knew God. I just didn't know Jesus. Well, when the apostles preached, they preached Christ, and they argued against fragmentation. They argued against sectarianism. In the end, when Jesus returns, go ahead. Uh, it's just a thought, uh, and my thoughts are usually in the forms of questions, but when... Uh, this man was talking about a Jew. They, when they wanted seeking forgiveness, they brought a lamb, okay, or or something similar. So they killed him, and that they forgive. Then John the Baptist came along, and he baptized in water. Whoops! All of a sudden, they just come. They're baptized with John just with water. Didn't bring nothing, and that was for forgiveness. Jesus, John said. One coming after me that'll baptize not with water, not with a lamb, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, when Jesus comes into your life and you ask that, it has nothing to do with how much I know or anything else. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what I'm baptized into, not water, not a physical thing, but the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And that's internal transformation of motive, what you're talking about. Right. Exactly. So, so in the end, we're talking about this. this in the end, how many groups will there be when Christ returns? Two. Oh, yeah, two. See, I got that. Yeah, two. <laughs> and how would you describe those groups? Or use biblical descriptions for those groups? Sheep and goats. Sheep and goats. Wheat and tares. Wheat and tares. The pure woman and the harlot. The, the fruitful vine and the withered vine. The saved and the lost. There'll be two groups in the end. And what, if you can distill it down, think about this, those two groups, don't think about Baptists, don't think about Adventists, don't think about Jews, don't think about Catholics, think about the two groups in the end, saved and lost. What is the demarcating factor amongst those two groups that makes the distinction between them? Method of how they were baptized, sprinkling versus immersion, will that be the demarcating factor? Which day one holds sacred, will that be the demarcating factor? What food one eats, vegetarian or not? Whether one's wearing jewelry, or not? How do we take communion? Will that be the demarcating factor? What one believes about the state of the dead? Who you identify the king of the north to be? What, what you believe regarding the trinity? Will that be the demarcating factor? How about if you say that, said the sinner's prayer or not? How about if you've accepted Jesus as your savior or not? Will that be the demarcating factor? Yes. No. No. 
No. Because there'll be some, says in Zechariah, in the New Kingdom, they're going to say, where did you get these marks in your hands and feet? They hadn't heard the story. In, in Romans chapter 2, starting verse 12, Paul says, those who have not heard the law, but do by nature the things contained in the law, are law unto themselves, their conscience-bearing witness, showing that law has been written on their heart. What's the New Covenant experience? I'll write my law on your heart. If you value what Ellen White says, she writes in Zara of Ages that there are the heathen who's never had the gospel brought to them by human instrumentality. But they've seen the, the, the voice of God speaking to them in nature and have done the things required by the law. God recognizes them as his children. They haven't said the sinner's prayer except to Jesus. They haven't heard of him yet. So what is it that demarcates the two groups? No God. Pardon? No God. Meaning? Trust God. I, I, I agree with you, but we have to define what that means. Trust God? I, I agree with that too. And with knowing and trusting God results in what, though? In the person. There you go. The demarcating factor is whether you've been transformed by a supernatural power to be like Jesus or not. If you're not like Jesus in heart, you haven't died to self. You haven't had the laws, what Paul says in Romans 2, those who've never heard the law, but have it written on their hearts. You see, they've been reborn. They've been recreated. They've been regenerated by power not of their own. The demarcating factor is transformation, healing, regeneration of the character to be like Christ. And I will tell you, there will be people who have a new heart and right spirit, recreated within, who believe different than you about certain doctrines. When we get to heaven, how many believe when we get to heaven? The day Christ arrives, on that day, there'll be one person on earth who actually knows every detail of the Bible correctly. There won't be one. Not one of us gets it all right. But how many of the saved will have a heart like God's and loves him and loves his methods? Oh. All the saved, yes. I was going to say, I used to tell my people that when I get to heaven, there's a special education class just for me. <laughs> if you want to join me, you're welcome. <laughs> yes, we, uh, you know, this is, this is what one, of the, one of the principles we promote in here. One of the principles we promote is we never want to arrive at the truth. Because once you arrive, there's no more to learn. You set down your fundamental beliefs and you begin defending anything that would change those and you can't learn anymore. We want to grow in the truth. God is infinite. We're finite. That gap is an infinite gap. For all eternity future, even when we're perfect, we will continue to grow. Our knowledge will grow. We'll never stop learning. The truth will continually unfold. Thus, we want to grow in the truth. And in Thessalonians, it describes the lost in these words. They lost because the reason... They did not love the truth and thus be saved. They weren't lovers of truth. They didn't want to grow. They didn't want to advance. They didn't want new light coming in. They couldn't be healed. So we wanted to develop that. So we would never say in this room that we have a corner on the truth. We have a principle of heart that we love to grow in the truth. So if we don't know something right, show us. Show us the weight of evidence. Show us the integrative approach and, and win us over. Sundays, first paragraph points out that the disciples were to wait for the empowering of the Holy Spirit before they went out to present the gospel. Then it states, God could have commissioned angels unassisted by human beings to broadcast the gospel. Instead, he elected to appoint sinful, erring, unpredictable humans for the sacred calling. Does God have a reason for what he does? 
He has invited us, as far as we can, John fifteen fifteen. and no longer call you servants, rather call you friends, because servants don't understand their master's business. He has invited us, as far as we're capable, of understanding. So what reasons might God have for using sinful human beings to take the gospel and not unfallen angels? Okay, I like it. So our participation does something to us, doesn't it? Does the sharing of the gospel do something to the person who shares it? So part of the reason, there's more than one, part of the reason is for the healing of the person who's sharing it. We are transformed by the participation, by the act of carrying it out. It transforms and heals us. By beholding, we become changed. In our God in Your Brain DVD series, the neurobiology, your circuits of your brain change based on your beliefs that you hold, the things that you practice, both directions. You believe the wrong God concept and promote that, you're changed in a different direction. What else besides, besides being healing and, and helpful to the people who are sharing it? Character transformation of the message bearers. What else? Yes, Russell. Well, because we, we can identify with our, our, our sinful brethren because we may have experienced the same thing. That's the, that's the whole reason Christ took on humanity. If he comes as an angel, I mean, how would he have been able to identify? This is one of, able to be tempted in every way like we are. Yeah, exactly. So this is another... Why are 12-step programs so helpful? It's easier to get help from somebody who has struggled with the same problem than to get help from somebody who you believe has no idea what you've gone through. Have you ever had the experience of losing a loved one? A spouse, a child, somebody you love? And somebody who has never lost anybody says, I know what you're going through. Do you appreciate that comment? But if you know they lost the same spouse, child, my heart goes, I know what you're going through. Do you, do you hear that different? Do you feel a, a kindred spirit there now? See? So yes, the second reason is because we who have gone through the pain and suffering and sin, who've experienced the regenerating power of the Spirit, who know the joy and peace that comes from reconciling to God, we can empathize with those and share that transforming experience that an angel couldn't do. angel can't say, I know how hard it was for you when you were molested at age 10. But somebody who went through that and found Christ could. What else? What other reasons? Because God wants conversion, not submission. Plus what a privilege God wants conversion, not submission. I want you to think about this. What happens if an angel of light were to come with a power show and give you the word? Does it enhance thinking when you see divine power demonstrated? Do you think it enhanced contemplation, thinking, weighing it out for yourself? Well, 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 wait, 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 wait. That didn't happen to people like Abraham. What we understand on the record, it was normal people. It was angelic and heavenly creatures in a normal context. And you mean looking like humans? Yeah, they probably looked like humans. They probably act like humans, and they probably would have looked just like the normal person on the street. But they knew who each other were. Okay, so okay, so angels. So we can break the angel presentation into two groups. One, angels coming with glory, like they did uh, to the um, to the shepherds. Okay. 
uh, or maybe like uh, Gabriel did to Daniel and, and some of the others, Isaiah and some of others, or we can break it down to they come in the form of humans. Yeah. Okay, so two types of angel presentation. I was thinking of the first type. If they come in power and glory, or they even come like humans, but you know they're an angel. Still. If you know you're talking to an angel from heaven, do you hear them different than if you listen to a human? Seriously, think about it. And, and do, you, do, do you take what they say with a greater weight of, of certainty and trust if you think they're an angel from heaven? So are you as critical in your thinking? No. This is how Satan's going to deceive. He's going to come as an angel of light. People are going to think he's an angel from, from heaven. And they're not going to think. They're just going to go with what he says. God doesn't want that. He wants conversion, not submission. And conversion requires, as Paul says in Romans, every person must be fully persuaded in their own mind. We can't be persuaded if we don't think. So I think another reason is God wanted us to think. This is why, if you, I think the same reason the Holy Spirit came, what Christ said to his apostles, it's expedient for you that I leave, because if I leave, the Spirit won't come. If Christ would have stayed physically present with them, any time a question of any kind came up, what would they have done? Would they have searched the scripture? Would they have prayed for enlightenment? Would they have weighed the principles out? Would they have been transformed in the process? Or would they just run to him for the answer? It's like having a math teacher who, when you have a problem, he just writes down all your answers but never lets you work the problem. Well, that depends on the math teacher because some math teachers will say, instead of just saying, well, the answer's on page 14, will say, well, let's work through this so that you understand the problem and you understand so that you understand it better than just me giving you the answer. And that's how I see the, how Christ's response probably would have been in that he spoke with parables and so forth. Well, I'm not disputing Christ's response. I'm disputing what the church would have done. What would they have done when their disputes arose? They would have gone to him to settle the question. Tell us what to do. Give us the answer. What they Here's an example of that. Israel. What did they do? They always ran to Moses. Moses, tell us, tell us, tell us. Moses, Moses. Well, they were slaves. So do you think we would have as, as great a development of our individual ability to understand and comprehend if angels came and told us the answers? No. That debate... Under this lesson, it says beggars bread. We are going to go out, and we're known as the ugly Americans for years. We go out. We're better than they are. We're going to save you through Jesus Christ. We have to remember we're all sinners saved by grace. So therefore, if we're all sinners, we're not holier than thou. So therefore, you understand the message that you say we relate to each other. If we remember that, we're no better than anybody, whether Muslims, Eastern religions, or anything. It's a matter of knowing who you are, and you're a sinner. And see, I think that's well said. And it comes back to realizing there's only two groups. That's it. Those who have been reborn and have a heart that love others, and those who are still fighting for self. Regardless of what other camp we put them in. And so in the bottom paragraph it says, how many of God's chosen vessels, prolific leaders in evangelism, administration, and leadership have been introduced to Christ by faithful disciples whose identities, humanly speaking, have long been forgotten? Although these people were not prominent themselves, think how crippled God's work might have been had these uh, not uh, had they not faithfully witnessed about Jesus. And I thought, true. Think about the, the, the woman with her two mites. We don't know who she was. But how many have been inspired by this? Or we do know Mary Magdalene's name. There are some others we, we know. Mary and Barbie and Fisher, remember, the, the two Amish girls? But how about the person who shared the gospel with Billy Graham? Whether it was his parents, a Sunday school teacher, coach, whomever, 
Look at the work he did. We don't know who, who brought Billy Graham to Jesus. But there are many people like that. But regardless of our sharing the gospel, it only grows in the heart that are receptive under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So understand your responsibility. Our responsibilities are not to convert. That's the Holy Spirit's responsibility. Our responsibility is to spread the truth, to be lights into the world, to plant seeds. That's our responsibility. We are never responsible for how others respond to the truth. Look at how they treated Jesus. Okay? He didn't get treated that way because he did a bad job of presenting the gospel. He did a perfect job presenting the gospel. And look how they treated him. So we don't judge our, our work based on this response of others. How do we share the gospel? Well, my mother forwarded me an email she recently received. Last year, my mother went to uh, vacation in Florida. She's on the beach, and she's sitting there talking to somebody she met on the beach, and they're just talking. And, and you know, moms, they always have to talk about their sons, right? So <laughs> mom starts telling her about my new book. And, uh, and so she received this email this week, uh, actually a couple weeks ago, from this lady she met on the beach. I went to San Francisco and Napa with my husband. I tagged along on a business trip, and guess what book I read while I was there? The God-Shaped Brain. It is such a great book, my husband is reading it now, and I want my kids to read it. God has really been doing something in me and healing me from wrong thoughts that I didn't even know I had. I know he used you on the beach that day to tell me about your son's book. I even bought it for a friend of mine who was going through a really bad divorce. Let me know if he ever comes to Florida to do a conference. It is such a powerful message, and I have had many of the same beliefs that he talks about in this book, and I could recognize many of the wrong thought processes I have had too. This has been such a difficult season in my life, but I know that God has used this book to transform my thoughts. I am ready to move into the next season. I will keep you and your family in prayers, especially Tim, uh, because this book can bring such freedom, and I know the enemy, enemy will be on the prowl. Please tell him I said thank you for writing it. So... Do you have to be a gospel preacher to share the gospel? No. Now, my mother chose to share my book, but it doesn't have to be my book. Okay? And you can share, share what resource that you find valuable and you believe will be appropriate to the person that you're talking to. So I'm going to say that it doesn't have to be my book, okay? Just whatever you find in that context would be helpful. That's the way to share the gospel. I just thought that was really neat, don't you think? Yep. Yeah. Monday's lesson it says, Through discourse and example, Jesus taught his disciples patience, facing bigotry, ignorance, misunderstanding, and outright conspiracy. Christ nonetheless patiently persevered. Such perseverance was anchored by Christ's complete dependence upon God's divine spirit. And I want to pause there. Why did Jesus, since he was the Son of God and not only man but fully divine, have to have complete dependence upon the Holy Spirit? Because I'm going to tell you, this is not, not, this is not agreed upon within the ranks of Christianity. There are some who teach that Christ won his victory by relying on his own divine power. There are some who teach that. Why, would that, why is it that that's, that would be a problem? Because he, he really didn't overcome because of being like us. He overcame because he had an edge. Why was it necessary for him to overcome in his humanity? Why was that necessary? teach us how to do it. Okay, one as a lesson. Is there any other reason other than an object lesson? Because he was healing humanity. There you go. This is the big point. 
He took up, this is a, this was what was taught in the early Christian church by, um, Justin Martyr and, and Irenaeus and, and others. This is called the doctrine of recapitulation. That Jesus picked up humanity, broken off in Adam and carried it to completion. He became in character, in his human brain, what God intended Adam to be. Adam didn't do it. Adam didn't complete it. He could have. He had the ability to in the Eden before sin, but he didn't. Jesus took up humanity and finished that work. And he only could do it by the exercise of his human brain. Why? Well, think about it. Does God exercising his divine brain do anything to fix human beings? It's a human brain. There's a couple of reasons for this. One, it also demonstrated, by the way, there was no manufacturer's defect. Get what I'm saying here? Christ's victory proves there was nothing wrong with how God made Adam and Eve. Without Christ's victory, God didn't make them right. He built them faulty. There's a manufacturer's defect in how he designed them. God's really at fault here. Christ's victory proves no, no manufacturer. He built them fine. That's one big reason. Two, God, the divine, the, the, the divine being, is free to create new creations, new orders of beings anytime he wants. He's the, he's the creator. He can do that. But any new creation he makes is not part of Adam. The only way to save Adam and, his, and this species human on earth was for a human being to win the victory. Prior to Christ's victory, there were perfect angels in heaven with perfect angelic character. God has a perfect divine character. Beings of other planets have perfect characters of their order. There was no perfect human character. Christ achieved that and healed and fixed and became what God intended Adam to be. Yes? Going back to your first point about uh, how there was no defect in the first model. Not only Christ was born 2,000 years, and Mrs. White points out that he came after years of degeneration. And yes. So actually, Adam was at a peak yes. uh, performance where Christ came and took of the infirmity of 2,000 years of decay of the human. Certainly. Uh, so even he had a disadvantage over Adam. He had a, Christ had several disadvantages over Adam. Um, was Adam tempted from within his humanity? Or was his temptation totally external to himself? And Eve. Did Christ experience temptation from within his humanity? In Gethsemane, did he have powerful human emotions that tempted him to avoid the cross and save self? Adam didn't have that. We have that. This is what Christ was destroying, this infection of self-centeredness that we have because of Adam. And he overwrote and wrote the law of love perfectly back into the human species at the cross. And he destroyed that infection at the cross. That's why it says in Timothy, he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. Get your mind around the difference between destroy, is destroying death, which is what Timothy says, the same thing as dying eternally. Because this is what most of Christianity teaches, that Christ died the second death. He died eternally. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says he destroyed death. And brought life and immortality to light. How did he destroy death? What is, the, what is the basis of life in this universe? God is the source based on or built on what? Love. 
the principle of love, the principle of giving. Every breath you take, you give away carbon dioxide. Plants give back oxygen to you. Design protocol of love upon which life is built, which originates in God, who is the source of life and love. This is the basis for it. Man, in Adam, deviated from that design, is in a terminal condition. We're dead in trespass and sin. We are dead. We're dying. Because we're outside the law. Outside the design. And there's no life there. This is why the law could not be changed to meet the sinner in a sin. To change the law would mean to change the design upon which life was built. It would destroy all life. can't be changed. The sinner has to be changed back to be put in harmony with the design. This is what Christ came to do. To change humanity back into God's original design. To eliminate the infection. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving. Bringing life to. Regenerating the soul. So, sin is transgression of the law. You are free to transgress the law of respiration, tie a plastic bag over your head, break the law, be a lawbreaker. As soon as you do, the wages of doing that, the result is death. This is, a, this, is, this is God's design. And we are born deviant from that design, born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We are not born guilty, we're born terminal. Well, one more thing, too, is that Adam's temptation was gain knowledge of him like God. So if Jesus would have been God on earth without being human. He couldn't have gone back to the Adam basis. Yeah. And so you look at the temptations of Christ, how he overcame. Every one of them was really a temptation to act in self-interest. Even on the cross, if you're the son of God, come on down. We'll believe. Save yourself. He can't. He saved others himself. He can't save. Save yourself. We'll believe in you. Notice the, the antagonistic principles. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend versus survival of the fittest. Watch out for myself. You know, greater love is no man. Give his life for a friend. I'll give my life that you might live. Survival of the fittest. Kill you that I might live. You know, these antagonistic principles at war. On the cross, Christ was hit with that over and over again. Save yourself. Come down. Save yourself. We'll believe. Turn the stones into bread. Save yourself. Bow down to me. Save yourself. Save yourself. Save yourself. This is, the, this is the root of it. And do you realize how strong that drive is in us? It is so strong, unaided, without love. Love is the only power in the universe to, to, to free us from this drive. If someone's holding your head underwater, and you get that, and you're drowning, and that urgency, it's building, it's desperate, you have a knife in your hand. Aren't you going to be tempted uh, with such incredible power to strike out and, and strike the person with a knife? Whether you kill him or just wound him, but you're going to be striking. To, to, isn't it true? But how about if it's your son? Would your love restrain you maybe? See, love is the only power that frees us from fear. And this is what it says in Revelation 12 about the saved. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Think of the, they don't love their life so much as to, they're not survival of the fittest driven. They're not protecting self. They're not trying to promote self. They love others and God more than self. They've had a heart change. That's the group in the end who say, our gracious heavenly father, we thank you so much that you sent Jesus to do for us what we could never do to overcome where we can never come. We don't have to win the battle, Lord. We have to accept the victory that you've achieved for us. Open our hearts. The Spirit comes, takes what you've achieved, reproduces it in us, so it's no longer I that live, but you live in me. We pray for that healing, transferring power to love you with our whole heart, mind, soul, and being in our neighbors as ourselves, that we can go out and be effective in presenting the gospel of your kingdom 
with your principles of truth and love and goodness to the world, that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.